and welcome to the Sound of Football podcast. I'm Graham Sibley, and as ever, I'm joined by Jan Bilton. Hello. And Terry DeFellon. Hello. In the middle of the split winter break, the Premier League winter break, where uh, half the Premier League goes off to Dubai or where have you, and the other half stay at home and play football. Then they come back next weekend and they play games when all the others go away to do their warm weather training or whatever lucrative PR stunts that they want to get involved with over this very, very important rest and recuperation time of the year. It's a bit weird, isn't it, Jan, this split break? They've only done it once before. They did it in the winter just before COVID. So look what it did then. Exactly. It's a strange one. I was just thinking, you know, when you said that they jet off to Dubai or wherever they go. I mean, it's lovely when you're out there, I imagine. But then you come back to, I mean, it's minus one here at the moment. So <laughs> you've been playing football and training in the Middle East. Then you come back and you go to Newcastle on a Sunday afternoon and it's minus one and the North Sea blown at you. Almost makes me think that this should go somewhere colder or just stay here and just get party because <laughs> the readjustments just seems like it's. Um, maybe I'm not a top athlete, Graham, so maybe there is something in it. But uh, I just think that it seems like a, a bit of a strange one to do, really. Yeah, but at least, Terry, what it meant was that there wasn't that much football around at the weekend, not in the Premier League anyway. So it opened up the schedules for watching what was actually some really good football. I mean, obviously, that African Cup of Nations kicked off and the Bundesliga came back as well, didn't it? Yeah, Bundesliga came back and Jaden Sancho returned to Dortmund like he'd never left. <laughs> Thinking up with Marco Royce with an assist. I mean, he'd only been on the pitch for 10 minutes or so. Uh, came on as a sub. I was surprised that he got on the pitch, but they're clearly happy with him and he was in good shape. It's only Darmstadt. So let's not get too carried away. But what's interesting is, is that and maybe there's a bit of shade going on here. It might be that Sebastian Kale is winding up Eric Ten Hag and Man United fans. But sporting director Sebastian Kale said, look, you know, he's been good as gold. I mean, if anything, he's been overpunctual, which, of course, is one of the things that he was accused of. And his attitude's been fine. They said he's come back. He's a few years older. He seems more mature. I think they need to be a bit careful not to get caught in, a, you know, what is an obvious dispute between uh, Sancho and United. But I guess because they know they're not going to sign him. So I guess they could probably be a little bit pixie-like. But if Sancho carries on like this, then, of course, it, the burden then falls back on United and Ten Hag and say, well, look, what exactly is this guy's problem? Because Dortmund don't seem to have a problem with him, but we shall see. Also, Jamie Bino-Gittens scored the first goal. Was it? Or did he lay on the first assist for that? Anyway, I think he was actually the assist. Yeah, he got laid on. It was Brandt who scored the first goal. So another Englishman. At Borussia Dortmund. Um, so, yeah, so sorry, a bit top heavy with Borussia Dortmund there. So, I just thought that that was of some note given the, the controversy around Sancho over here. Of course, today, what's on right now as we're talking is Cameroon Guinea, and it's one all there at the moment. Obviously, one player who did turn out for United at the weekend was Andre Anana. He was playing yesterday and getting a private jet over to the Ivory Coast so that he could play today for Cameroon. But it hasn't actually worked out that way. Because of bad weather, he was redirected to the capital of the Ivory Coast, uh, rather than the uh, near to the city where he was actually playing, a full 200 kilometres away. So he was in one city and the team was getting ready in another. Yeah, and it's all a bit of a fiasco, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, clearly they should have just let him go. 
any other fixture that'll let them go and, and prepare with the squad, wouldn't they? So um, I think that that's quite disrespectful. I think I, I suppose the player had a had a, a, a choice in that as well, but that just sounds that's farcical, isn't it? It really is. Can I ask? So was it United who footed the bill for that private jet then, presumably, in order to let him play uh, against Tottenham? I think it was his own charter. Who are the charter airlines sending the invoice to? Is that is the thing? Because it's definitely not me. The Cameroonian FA is it? They're no, not no, it's not. A scandalous though the whole thing, but it's weird. It is weird, and it's the sort of story that comes out at Afcon, isn't it? This whole thing of him playing on Sunday for United and then trying to play on the Monday for Cameroon. I mean, yeah, I get it. He's a goalkeeper; he doesn't have to play with the team, get to know them. But from what I saw of the first half, the Cameroon squad looked like a bunch of strangers. So I don't know how much preparation they've done anyway. Um, Guinea went a goal up, and Cameroon only got back into the game because Guinea got a player sent off. Um, I've just to interject there, actually, to be fair, because of course Anana did kind of retire from the national team anyway because of his relationship with the president of the Cameroon. Federation, the great Samuel Eto. So it's all a little bit of a weird situation anyway, because I, I think uh, when I don't think you're allowed to retire unless you're like super old anyway. I mean, you can <laughs> you can be un, you can be unretired by your federation. So it's all a bit of a strange one to begin with. But yeah, the idea of being able to well, we seem to be showing a, throwing a bit of shade on Man United here. But I mean, really. So sorry, Mark, if you're listening, you know, if you have not like hung up by now, like going, oh, God, any more Man United bashing? No, this is the last of the Man United bashing for this episode. For, I think for this episode. Well, um, let's, let's 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 look at our checklist. Yeah, we've we've done Jaden Sancho, we've done Andre Anana. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think. Well, unless we get ten minutes to the end, we can just like just have a pile on on Eric Ten Hag <laughs> just for just for shits and giggles, really. Yeah, yeah. Is I'm going to make it my mission in life to get another dig in at Man United in the <laughs> I mean, next 25 minutes. There. Oh yeah, it's, there's it plenty is. there. Well, it's a strong field, isn't it? Well, okay, well, the the main thrust of our conversation today is going to be financial mismanagement, and I don't think we could we could complain about <laughs> about Man United there, could we? Well, actually, they're a long way down the list of lots of clubs who could be in trouble for that. Let's start with what's happening tomorrow, the day that this podcast comes out. Now, uh, on the 16th of January, uh, 10am, down in Westminster, the Premier League CEO, Richard Masters, and the EFL chair, Rick Parry, are going to come down to London and talk about the independent regulator for football and about how there's no problem in football, apparently. But entirely coincidentally... Today had the announcement from the Premier League that Nottingham Forest and Everton are going to go back in front of an independent commission because of profitability and sustainability rules. Uh, Jan, Everton in trouble again. What the hell is going on? Well, I mean, you've got to ask the question now. If you're an Everton fan, I mean, the, the response... The impressive response, I thought, and dignified response they give to the, some would say, heavy-handed 10-point deduction earlier in the season. They were getting behind their club, but, I mean, they could potentially double down. Um, I know the fans were mentioned in the quite pointed official response on the Everton website. But, you know, go one of two ways, couldn't it? They, they either, as I said, double down, or they just go, well, there's only so much, we're making ourselves look ridiculous now. Maybe we need to turn our fire on the uh, on the owners in, in a more substantial way. Um, because, it, I mean, they could uh, face a fine, which just makes the issue 10 times worse. 
or they could get another points deduction, which is going to make it, depending on how many points it is, but it's going to, if it's anywhere near what they had before, that's going to make staying up incredibly difficult, which of course compounds the whole issue as well, because then they're in a different division and there's less money available and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, a really, really difficult time ahead for Everton. And it must be awful being an Everton fan. What about Forest, though? I mean, their position isn't so clear because they haven't been in the Premier League for three years. And these rules are meant to be about how much money you've lost over the last three years. So um, I don't want us to go into the, the whys and wherefores or the actual accounting here. Let's just say that Forest seem to have fallen into the profitability and sustainability bear trap. Now, they could lose points. They've had a couple of decent results under Nuno, but these new manager bounces do not last forever. So they could be in trouble. And if they are deducted points, is this all just a conspiracy theory to keep Burnley up? Did you say conspiracy theory? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that, was ears, person, Brian, that was my ears. That was my ears. That sound you heard was my ears pricking up. I mean, if there was, there'd be easier ways to do it. Like, I don't know, maybe actually disallowing goals at the end of games that were that come about because of clear fouls. I mean, that's one way of doing it. You wouldn't need to come up with some crazy scheme of deducting points from everyone around them to keep them up. Terry, how many teams are going to end up being relegated this year because they've had points taken off them? Oh, I mean, goodness knows. You think about Forest and you do think about that massive spending spree at the beginning of last season in the opening season transfer window where they signed, was it 21 players and spent a, a large amount of money? And then you, you sort of like think, well, OK, yeah, fair enough. That kind of does make sense. And that I guess that's where they are. It is a bit odd because they've only been in the division in the in this in the league for a season and a half, and it's you know those rules kind of apply to a three-year season average, don't they? So I don't fully understand that, but I'm sure it makes sense to somebody. Interestingly, Chelsea have spent an awful lot of money, and there's talk about the rules of how they apply to them. But I guess it's even muddier because of the recent ownership changes that they've had as well. And the fact that they got nationalised for a few months as well, bizarrely. I wonder if that's had an effect. But it does seem as though the screw's being turned. And I'm trying to figure out, yeah, whether or not is this, not necessarily conspiracy, but is this the Premier League responding to the challenge set by the impending regulator? Or is this just simply a culmination of time? You've got one club in Forest who spent a very large amount of money in a very short space of time. And then you've got Everton who have just been overspending over a longer period of time and and that finally the time is up the hourglass has finally run out and it, the time has come for them to account for all of that as a palace fan uh, who is you know or perennially looks over his shoulder at the bottom three anyway but certainly this season has not been a great season you know i, I guess i can be relatively uh, happy that there's a possibility of more points deduction but i mean i think if i was an everton fan i'd be really disappointed because I'd be more than disappointed of that's not the word at all I'd be quite angry because I'd I'd feel as though my club's being as honest as possible in a situation that's beyond the fact that they've broken rules and then I'd look at like Manchester City I suppose and that's what everyone would look at and think well you know there seems to be a disparity here but again that needs to be explored more thoroughly. Well, is the moral of the story then all you really need is to be owned by a very, very rich country and then you wouldn't have any problems? 
I think the answer to that question is yes, be owned by somebody who's who's uh, who's got so much money they can fight it. But I think if you're going to cause problems and you're going to you're going to break rules, you might as well go big. And City <laughs> went big, 115 <laughs> charges against them. So that's going to take years potentially. I was reading, um, well, at least a year they, they suspect before that gets in front of the independent committee because there's so much to look at and it's so complex. So yeah, the you know if you're going to tell a lie, tell a really really big one. That's the way to do it. The Everton and Forest issue is that they they just broke one rule. I mean, where's your ambition, lads? Come on. <laughs> yeah, isn't a lot of this part of the problem though? Is that and this goes back earlier than City that financial sustainability is trying to put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to clubs overspending and clubs have overspent for forever really forever clubs have i mean perhaps not to the extent that they they might now on the way back from work i was thinking well if they had these kind of rules back in the early 90s when blackburn rovers were spending the jack walker was spending the money i mean pittance by comparison to what it is now but at the time these were fantastic amounts of money that mm. lifted blackburn from a mid-table lower mid-table division one side into the premier league and to its summit and they won a title out of it how much of that would have been legal by today's standards i i, I don't know uh, it might well have been entirely and i don't wish to cast aspersions or take anything away from Blackburn's achievements, because it was an extraordinary achievement. Kenny Dalglish did an amazing job putting that team together. But they clearly spent more money than realistically that club was ever likely to ever make, you know, in that similar period of time, all because of the patronage of one man. That is oftentimes that's how football works. It's dear old Wimbledon, who most people love. I mean, like I know they're kind of like, wow, oh, yeah, such a tiny club, an amazing story, but they spent a load of money on players to get themselves through the divisions. And it does happen. I mean, they're not, that's not the only example. So I think a lot of the problem is, is that clubs overspend. They just do. And like trying to stop them from doing that, you know, over the last few years creates these apparent, you know, inconsistencies and injustices because he's like, well, look at them. They're spending money. How come they're not getting punished? Mm. You know, and you do wonder whether or not the whole thing's just a colossal waste of time, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I did mention that not only is Richard Masters going up in front of the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, but also Rick Parry. Now, Rick Parry has been broadly supportive of the independent regulator, a lot more supportive than Richard Masters has been. The EFL did make a statement today with regard to the financial situation at Reading, which was basically saying to the owner, the frankly useless owner of Reading, Dai Young, to get out of the club. Now, this may also be a play to say that the EFL are actually doing something proactive about the plight of one of their members. But in the past, they've always said, look, these are businesses in their own right. We just organise the competition. So the independent regulator, who fans will hope will stop people like the Reading owner from running a club into the ground or just making a complete dog's breakfast out of the whole thing. Fans will also want to have a say in how their club is being run. But that doesn't stop them from running a club Badly. We know that by and large, fan owned clubs run themselves very well because they run themselves within their means. But obviously, the biggest clubs in the world, like Real Madrid and Barcelona, are also fan owned and they are financial basket cases. And they re elect their presidents 
year after year after year because they spend lots and lots of money. Now, I know Terry's going to be pulling a face here now, even though my brightness on my screen is down. But, uh, Terry, <laughs> is the independent regulator going to cure all these problems or not? Well, no, I wouldn't have thought so. I would have thought that it just would be in a much better position to enforce its laws. It, I think probably in this instance, its greatest value will be assessing the fit and proper persons and probably the framework for owning a football club will be uh, a lot more tighter and well-defined. And I would imagine that, for example, like the people like Dai Yong, who is the Reading owner, might not be allowed to take over a football club in the way that he was able to do so beforehand. They will have control and authority on enforcing financial sustainability rules as well, although to what extent they will draft those rules themselves and how much of that will be enforcing, say, Premier League existing rules, these are all things that have yet to be determined. Once the regulator is, is established, it will then, of course, need to spend a, a degree of time coming up with its rules and frameworks. And also the manner with which it's going to enforce and apply those rules as well. All will have to be decided. And all of that's happening in the backdrop of an election year, almost certainly likely to be a change in government and a perhaps change in emphasis as well, assuming, of course, that the regulator happens at all. And I'm sure it will. So you'd like to think that things will be better on that front. After all, that is why people want a regulator. They want a regulator to stop this sort of thing from happening. Um, so the expectation is, is that that's what it will do. But I'm sure that anybody who's worked in an industry that is heavily regulated will know that regulators aren't always necessarily a good thing. Anybody who works in the education sector, for example, would have strong views on the regulator, same with broadcasting. So it's very much a case of we shall see. Hmm. Yeah, and Terry's brushed on a, an important point here is because the independent regulator is politically a popular idea it's popular amongst fans and considering the fallout with what happened to Barry when they went bust when a fine institution historic institution that was allowed to frankly disappear and it's only the fans that, that have been able to keep the club alive in a much much reduced circumstances what options should an independent regulator have when it comes to clubs that have bad owners like Dai Yong and what would be an alternative if they couldn't find another buyer for the club because it's in such a parlous state? Should the independent regulator have those sort of powers or is this really just a matter for, well, unless the fans can bail it out or unless some angel arrives with a bag full of cash, then this club will have to cut its cloth accordingly? It's a really difficult one because there are, as, as we mentioned earlier, businesses in their own right but these are community assets. And as we saw with Bury, that's a whole load of history and community gone with a, the stroke of an administrator's pen. Um, and that's, that can shatter communities. Um, you know? So I think that the government should be ready to step in, a bit like they did with Chelsea. In very different circumstances, but it was clear that the ownership had to change um, and uh, you know there's that's that's much the same currently at reading the the ownership has to change so somebody needs to step in so it may well be an independent regulator steps in and they run the club until a, a buyer's found or you you approach i don't know an independent body that just does it to take over and you know keep the lights on and, until a buyer's found 
But if you look at the situation with, with well, not just with Reading, but there's, there's plenty of other clubs where they've had individuals that have just run those organisations into the ground. The fit and proper persons test uh, or whatever it, it's going to be called by the new regulator needs to have some teeth. It really does. And it needs to be able to say, yes, you may have demonstrated you've got all the money, but are you the right character for this? And I think that's what we need to look at. Da Yong, he had a club that folded in China after he'd moved it from province to province. Uh, it was craziness. I mean, that should have just precluded him straight away. So um, there just needs to be, it needs to be robust in its ability to stop these things from happening, to stop cowboy owners coming in and, and ruining community institutions. Terry, is Chelsea an exceptional circumstance or should the government be willing to provide cover for clubs in the way it did for Chelsea? Breaking it down to brass tacks, Chelsea, if it had been treated like any other business that had been owned by a Russian oligarch investing in the UK, would have gone out of business, would have been liquidated. It was an asset to be liquidated. But because of the place that it has in the community and the place it has in our cultural fabric, the government decided to intervene and and keep it going. It didn't or couldn't presumably put it into administration. It just essentially just like kept it going, said, no, you can carry on just going along. That's fine. Effectively kind of nationalizing it, although not actually, but, you know, at all intents and purposes, it was under public ownership. It was existed by the permission of the crown. So extraordinary, really. Now, these are extraordinary circumstances because of the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, and because of the sudden change in status of Russian citizens and Russian oligarchs who had a relationship with Putin were suddenly persona non grata. And, you know, had to basically clear off and, and had all their all their money taken away from them, their British money taken away from them. That was an extreme situation, Graham. But at the same time, I mean, surely when it comes down to it, this is a, cl- a club is reduced to almost nothing where, where the, the alternative is to shut it down. So, yeah, th- I think there is justification to say, well, the precedent has been set and say, well, rather than put this club into administration where we completely... Uh, mess up all of the I mean clubs have creditors clubs poorly run they don't pay their debts their debtors will lose out if the club goes into administration because they'll only get maybe you know one or two penny in the pound and that's not in anyone's interest to do that so if there is actually a way of going well actually you know what what we're going to do is we're going to put you into special measures and you can keep going and we'll take over and then we'll find a new owner facilitate a new owner and then we'll make that happen Now, if that is coupled with a robust, well-enforced fit and proper owner test, then I can see that working. Because then at that point, you're saying, well, everyone's acting in good faith. The owner of this club is a good owner, but they've had a terrible run of luck or something terrible has happened to them. And now the club is facing financial peril. And so we're going to step in. Whereas if you don't have that at the beginning, you, you you just like let anybody in. Then, of course, they could then effectively use the government as an overdraft. And just say, well, actually, that's fine. I'll just run this club into the ground. And then the government will take over if I mess it up. So I I lose nothing. You know, I don't want to be overly dramatic. But if a club owner was to say, look, if you mess this club up, we'll put you in prison. (laughs) We'll fine you heavily or we'll restrict you from operating. You won't be able to own a business anymore. You can sanction owners, potential owners, by saying, yeah, okay, you can have this club. But the consequences of you messing this up you mess this club around, then, you know, you will be seen as as messing with a community asset, with an important cultural asset, 
we take a dim view of that and we'll punish you. We'll censor you significantly. Throwing people in jail is massively extreme and a bit impish of me. So I want to see a regulator with that kind of power. I don't believe for a second they're going to have anything like that kind of authority. But it, it, it should be something to think about. Well, the thing that springs to my mind is who would pay for that? Where would the money be once a club is in special measures? Is that going to be public money that's going to go yeah. into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no. that won't hold. It would have, but it would have to be, and that's why it's not going to work, Grant. Yeah. Because it's not going to happen. Because it's not. It, no, it's like it's that. No one's going to say that's not a fair use of taxpayers' money. I mean, the government spends its money on all kinds of wacky things. Yeah. But something like that, something that people give a shit about. No, they, they, they won't. It's something that's of, of genuine value and offers richness to our communities and culture. No, 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 they won't. They won't pay for that. No. And no Labour government will do it either. So no. In case people think I'm being partisan. It's crazy, though, isn't it? Because they the step in and have stepped in for train operators and <laughs> subsidise train operators massively. To train the op- tunes train of operator shareholders are still dr- drawing their share of dividends. Yeah, and it's being paid for by government money. But yeah. bailing out a football club, forget it. Yeah, it's, it's absolute madness. Yeah, absolute madness. The trains, the water, both heavily regulated, and still mm-hmm. pumping raw sewage into the rivers. And this is the problem that that I think some people might think could happen if a regulator really did have teeth. First off, you'd have to have legislation to do that. It couldn't just say, right, these are our guidelines, these are our rules for operating. You'd have to have actual law because these people who run football clubs have pockets deep enough to get decent lawyers. And imagine an ownership battle for a club going through the courts for five, six years. Where would the club end up by the time that was resolved? And who'd be paying the bill for it at the end? The concept of the independent regulator, I get. I really do. And I I like the idea of it. But in reality, it wouldn't do anything more than what is there already. The weak powers that the FA have had for years, the powers that the leagues have not wanted to use against crap owners and really been backed into a corner now into doing something about it because they think that something is going to be taken away from it and with good reason to as well. The whole thing about what you were saying earlier about City seemingly getting away with this because they've just got so many charges against them and about how many years it's going to be for it to resolve. And the, the real reason is, is because they've got more lawyers. They've got more people protecting them. And I think the more legislation that we bring in, the more the lawyers will become a more central part of a club's arsenal. And that's really, really a grim vision of the future, isn't it? Yeah, they put a banner up, didn't they? City fans in tribute to the lawyer who's Mr. Panic, who is uh, yes. you know, overseeing the whole thing. I mean, that just gives you an indication as to where where they're at. And how quickly fans' loyalties can shift and what they think is important for them as well. Do you remember when fans used to be massively critical of their football club? <laughs> they were almost acting like a regulator. of them. They love the mm. club, support the club. And I felt felt such a strong sense of ownership of the club that if they felt that the club were acting in a way that was dishonourable, they would, you know, criticise them, speak out against them. I don't know. Doesn't that doesn't feel like it? It's probably because uh, social media algorithms, the way that it drives the, the kinds of engagement, the kind of things that you see. I'm sure there are plenty of cities fans who are probably, you know, who don't feel or are not comfortable with the way things are going here and have their doubts. 
And then all I would say is, and we said it last time, is, is they better be right about this. Yeah. I mean, if they've been prevaricating, if it turns out that they've just done this, they know they're guilty and they're just prevaricating, then I think they should be relegated three times hmm. for pissing everyone around. I think you're right, Terry. I think it could be a lot to do with social media algorithms, but maybe it is because we're so jaded by it anyway. But yeah, I look at the stuff about Newcastle United, and of course, you're always shown Newcastle fans wearing Saudi headgear and carrying their green flags around everywhere but then on the flip side of it you've got NUFC against sports washing but I'm sure there are other people who will look at social media accounts like that and think well who's financing them who's mobilizing that group because that's how all of us think nowadays when whenever we hear a voice that is counter to what we think should be the narrative we always think well who's behind it well Jan does don't you yeah I mean that's the first thing I think what well, I was thinking there is that Newcastle fans against sports washing are probably receiving their funding from Iran. <laughs> <laughs> I would have um, thought aliens. That you'd have thought maybe it might be aliens, but yeah, no, Iran yeah, is. Good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, once I discounted Iran, I would have, I would have got to aliens eventually, Terry. I mean, we, uh, we know that. I, but I think actually, on a more serious point, there are fans that critical of the of the club. You saw um, in Manchester United protests over the, the Glazer owners. So um, there is some there. But I think uh, you are right, Terry. But I think that there's an opportunity there to get more fan ownership in football, whether the, some kind of legislation comes in say you've got to give a proportion to fans. Um, I know they've, they've talked about it with the independent regulators saying having fan representation on the board. Um, but I think that, you know, with the exception of the, the Spanish clubs you mentioned uh, earlier, Graham, I think that you are right that fan run clubs tend to, to work out better. We're never going to have that in England, I don't think. But I think if you can have some proportion of it, where the, the fans have actually got a voice and, and how that is run, uh, which they should, because it's their community. And once those owners disappear off and, and find something else shiny to play with, they're going to be left with the, the mess, potentially. That's the way forward for me. Terry, I'll leave the final word on this subject for you because we always look at the German model of 50 plus one. And I think fan groups over here look at the German model as well increasingly. And it, it comes up a lot in the narrative and has come up in the narrative to do with the independent regulator. But I wonder if the 50 plus one rule works so well in Germany because there is an entirely different fan culture about fan engagement. And I wonder is whether or not that's just a cultural thing or whether or not that's just because German fans are like that because of 50 plus one, not because they are fans who happen to be German. It's my opinion that the, the ownership framework has allowed the fan culture in Germany to develop in the way that it has done. The fact that the various different supporter groups behave the way that they do and engage with their clubs in the way that they do is because they can. It's because they have the authority to, they've got the power to do that, the influence to do that. Bayern Munich not going for the Super League largely. Yeah, okay, maybe they didn't hold with it, but more certainly because they knew that they would be in for an absolute shitstorm when it comes to elections. They could have survived it, but they could have known they would they would have been in for a hard time. And I don't know too much about it. I know a bit about Bundesliga history, obviously, you know, because I've written a book about uh, Borussia Dortmund's history, um, which I will plug right now. But my reading of this is that I think that before 50, 50 plus one is still relatively recent in German football. It doesn't go back that far. So, you know, before then, I wouldn't necessarily characterize German football fans as being that different to English football fans. 
And I think that when they've been given that opportunity to take ownership and to influence a club and have genuine power, that they've utilised it. And some make mistakes and some don't make mistakes. And it goes back to what you're talking about, about the two Spanish giants. That's a different structure. That's just a popular vote to vote for a, a president who makes crazy promises and sometimes carries them out, sometimes doesn't. But the idea of actually having, you know, the opportunity to genuinely steer the direction that a club goes in, I would suggest to you that the English fans are just as capable of being you know, responsible fans in that respect as the Germans are. I don't think it's necessarily a cultural thing at all. Mm-hmm. There, I said it. Yes. English people would never vote in someone on a bunch of crazy promises, would they? No, and neither were Germans. <laughs> <Very good>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder what we're going to be watching this weekend anyway. Well, another half Premier League weekend, but we still managed to get two games in our box set because Arsenal will be hosting Crystal Palace. Yes, come on. The sound of football derby. <laughs> the big one. And also, Bournemouth will be hosting Liverpool. Bournemouth, one of the form teams at the moment. If you look at the form table, I think they're third or something ridiculous like that. So that's going to be an exciting encounter. Of course, there will be more African football as well. Terry, any fixtures that have leapt out for you from the weekend? Yeah, of course, there's Leipzig-Leverkusen, which is, of course, the big Plastico derby. Uh, The two plastic clubs, two biggest plastic clubs. I'm talking about fan ownership and stuff like that by Leverkusen, <laughs> non-fan owned, top of the Bundesliga right now. So, uh, yay, Bundesliga. <laughs> yay, 50 plus five. Um, yeah, but to be fair, Leverkusen, uh, I mean, they've lost some players to AFCON and they've lost Victor Boniface, who was training for AFCON and is now going to be out for a few weeks. But they managed to get a late, late, late dramatic uh, winner against Augsburg uh, on the return to Bundesliga action at the weekend. Leipzig somewhat off the boil, it's got to be said, under Marco Rosa. So that will be a really, really entertaining game, I would have thought, very tense. Can Leverkusen keep that points gap between them and Bayern Munich? Can they do it, guys? Can they do it? And Jan, what about Girona against Sevilla? Do you think they can maintain their run into this year? Uh, Girona slipped up at the weekend, didn't they? They were playing Almeria uh, and drew nil-nil. Almeria bottom of uh, La Liga so uh, Sevilla is a few places above that only just outside of the relegation zone so um, you would imagine on paper they'd win but given what happened last week anything could happen Mm. well if you want to see what we think will occur at the weekend then get along to sofpodcast.com and click on the link for the weekend box set there'll be a little box there that you can put your email address in and you can subscribe and you will get to read what we think will happen in the seven games we think you should be watching from Friday to Sunday. But that is all we have time for this week. So from me, Graham Sibley, from Jan Bilton and from Terry Lovell, it's goodbye. 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 We are at Sound of Football on X, Blue Sky and Instagram, so feel free to get in touch there or head to our website, sofpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us. I wonder if that's not the first time that Girona has slipped up against Almeria. They could say, Almeria once again. Okay.
Also, my <laughs> my Girona, my 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 Girona slipped up against Almeria once again. Yep. Okay. No, no, we're not getting the whole Almeria once again thing. No, no, no. No. Someone needs to call the RSPCA because <laughs> yeah. there's somebody down in Sussex flogging a dead horse. <laughs> Fine. 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 Screw you guys. I'm going to go and get some food. <laughs> <laughs>